there's so many women who aren't even aware that everything is through male lens and that there's better things that we can do to improve their performance potential and to reduce things like overtraining and relative energy deficiency in sport and really bust some of the myths. When we look at the typical recommended daily allowance for women, it's actually based on older sedentary men because the assumption was, oh, they have around the same lean mass and body composition, so it should be the same. But if you look at 60 plus year old men and their muscle mass and the way that their bodies can rejig muscle and repair, it's completely different from a 20 year old woman. Dear listeners, this show is brought to you by Freeletics. Building a fitness routine took my life to a new level. Energy, confidence, health, feeling good about my body, staying young and agile. But most of us find it enormously difficult to build such a routine. The motivation is lacking, the workouts feel bad, the plan doesn't adapt, the success doesn't materialize. But it is possible to be healthy, fit, and enjoy your life. Because I certainly did not want to be held hostage to a fitness routine or feel that I am somehow missing out on life just to be fit. For those willing to invest a few minutes of their day to develop a determined lifelong workout routine, Freeletics offers a simple lifestyle, personalized workout plans, and data-driven insights to maximize your likelihood of success while having fun. Start now at freeletics.com. Also, this show is sponsored by Stadium. The scientifically proven benefits of training with weights are indisputable. For the major physiological systems in your body, such as muscle size, strength, athletic performance, functional capacity, also for the increase in bone density, and the improvements in cardiovascular, cognitive, and psychological health. Working out with weights is almost a magic bullet. And now you can have all of these benefits at home. Stadium offers you high quality, stylish weight training equipment that you will love to have lying around your place. Get it at stadium.com. Thank you for supporting the show and checking out our sponsors. And now let's start with the conversation. Welcome to This One Life. Today on the show, Dr. Stacy Sims. Stacy is an exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist. She has directed research programs at Stanford, AUT University, and the University of Waikato, focusing on female athlete health and performance. She's also a recognized speaker and author. Stacy, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. What is your journey and what has ignited your passion for understanding the unique physiology of women in the realm of fitness? So I started as a collegiate athlete. So at undergrad at university and I was on the rowing team. And I was also doing exercise physiology. And it was kind of a, a shifting point where 
was training hard, made the first boat, training with my teammates, both men and women. And there'd be times where the women weren't quite at the same capacity as the men when we should have been if we were following the same training and periodization. And so those those kind of moments kind of sat funny with me. And then I would be in the classroom learning about how the body works, exercise, you know, metabolism, how you fuel, recovery. And there wasn't any conversation about women. It was always him or they in the textbooks. And the examples were always going back to the standard uh, 80 kilo man and all the stuff that was around him. And Going through that, it didn't really dawn on me until we got into some of the exercise phys labs and I would always be a participant. And there were often times when they would throw my results out being the only woman. And I started questioning, why are you throwing my stuff out? Like I've done everything same as the men. I've standardized the same where everything's the same. And they would, one part, um, professor in particular said, well, often we do this because women are anomaly and the results can throw things out. And it has to do with things like the menstrual cycle. And then another one was, well, we just kind of really just try to pull all the women's status in, but if it causes an outlier, then we'll throw it out. And I was like, wait, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. So I started digging in and realizing that almost all of the research and the guidelines for training and recovery and nutrition were all based on male data and then generalized to women or as we say in the industry, shrink and paint. So they would make it smaller just to fit into this box for women. And as a competitive athlete, that didn't seem to optimize what I wanted to do or what my um, training partners and my teammates wanted to do. So that was kind of like the first leverage to really start looking and launch the career. And I had the kind of opportunity to be an athlete as well as being an academic to be able to look and say, hey, this isn't right for women. Let's go investigate a little bit more. So being able to be an athlete, be with athletes, understand what was going on real time in the field. And if the answers weren't there, having the capacity to go back to the lab to answer. Them. And that's kind of like the journey. And as I got through my athletic career and got out the other side and my teammates became Olympic coaches, you know, ex-Olympians now becoming Olympic coaches and they're wanting more information. So the passion and drive is to really understand that there's so many women who aren't even aware that everything is through male lens and that there's better things that we can do to improve their performance potential and to reduce things like overtraining and relative energy deficiency in sport and really bust some of the myths like not having a period is really good for you. It means that you're ready to race. So really it is going to be a continuous drive and passion because I have a daughter who's 11. She's going to come up in the sporting world. I still have friends who are racing. I have friends who are coaches. And there is a whole wealth of women who are coming into the sport and fitness world that shouldn't just be a, a considered a little man. I have a two and a half year old daughter, and I hope that she will also be able to benefit from from the research that that you and you know fellow researchers do on that topic. To awesome. understand to understand that correctly, um, when when you said that you know typically the advice that was collected was then um, made smaller strength to to the female, does that just mean that um, they took body weight for example and so what 
um, what the what the recommendation was for an 80 kilogram male, um, and when you wanted to transfer that to a 50 kilogram female, the they basically assumed it would be a 50 kilogram male, and and just uh, you know did the relation of of the weight and and therefore changed whatever training and and and, and guidance. Pretty much, yeah. And basic things like your recommendation for daily protein intake. When we look at the typical recommended daily allowance for women, it's actually based on older sedentary men because the assumption was, oh, they have around the same lean mass and body composition, so it should be the same. But if you look at 60 plus year old men and their muscle mass and the way that their bodies can rejig muscle and repair it, it's completely different from a 20 year old woman. But, you know, when you're making these guidelines, they're not going to go and look at nitrogen studies and do nitrogen studies on women. They're just going to be like, hey, we have this for older men, same kind of body composition. So it should hold true. Where do you think this male lens originally came from? Because just from a layman perspective, it does seem very inaccurate to, to take the approach that we've just been discussing. Yeah, well, historically, we know what has happened. So historically, all biomedical research, which includes sports science research, nutrition, pharmacological research, it's all been done by men for men. And what I mean by that is back in the Industrial Revolution and even earlier days, when you're looking at how modern medicine came to be, it was the men that were like, we are have bigger brains, we're smarter, we're going to university, we're creating this medical school, we're doing the research. And when you have a group of like-minded individuals sitting around the table designing a study, they're only going to look at how do I design a study for who's in the room. And women were excluded because they were deemed, I guess, less, less than adequate to be in the same education guidelines as men. So as we go through modern days and modernization, no one's questioned scientific design. They've all been in the whole idea of, okay, if we're going to do a randomized controlled trial, we have one week of a, of a control, a week washout, one week of a typically for funding and everything. So if you look at the male model, that fits fine. But when you look at putting a woman into that, you get a, a, a complexity of menstrual cycle or you know hormone um, interactions, so that can mess up the data. So historically, women have been excluded because they've been deemed too complex to include because it would mess up the scientific design. And prior to that, women didn't even come into the picture as being part of a scientific design because they weren't in the room. So we've had mandates along the way um, like in the 90s, the National Institute of Health, which is a major funding body in the States, has said, look, we have to look at including women. You have to legitimately write why you were excluding women. And people found loopholes around it. But then in the early 2000s, they're like, no, that's got to stop. You have to include women and you have to include female mice. You can't just use male mice. You can't just use cells from male animals. You actually have to include it into the female environment. So all of these things have come into play and we know what that historical picture is. Now we're moving forward with better scientific design with a female lens in a female environment. We're having more um, 
female principal investigators who are bringing on younger women to have a female environment and look at it in a different perspective. And we're starting to get more robust research out specifically in female athletes, but we're still really far behind because this hasn't really become apparent until really the last 10 to five to 10 years. Uh, what is the impact of the the current you know environment discussions around gender equality, gender identity on your area of research on the acceptance of that? Because it feels that on the one hand, it does um, significantly contribute to um, gender e equality in a sense. You know, there's e equal importance, equal equal focus um, on on both genders. On the other hand, it also underlines the difference between um, men and female. And in, in the current discussion where we're uh, highlighting differences and, and, and even defining what a man and, and, and a woman is seems to be difficult. There, there, there seem to be very mixed uh, impact. There seems to be very mixed impact from this on your area of work? Yeah, so, you know, we've, we quantify it a lot. Not that we want to, but right now, because funding and research is so scarce, and we know that this isn't correct, but right now, when we talk about the research that we're doing, we're talking about the biological female. And then I also um, partner with a sociologist who is very much in the gender identity. So. Do you identify as female? Do you identify as male? So we've done some physiological and sociocultural work. So we look at things like in a sporting environment, what creates someone's drive to become anorexic or what creates someone's drive to get better, regardless of if they are male or female. And if they do identify as female, but they're transgendered, how does that impact their drive and motivation and how they feel within the environment? When we look specifically at like the biological molecular work that a lot of us are doing just in the phys space, we don't have enough research on just cis women. And the funding is starting to come up, but in order to answer questions for most women, except for you know, maybe the 15 or 10% that are transgendered, we have to get a body of knowledge. So then we know the starting point to then be able to look specifically at transgendered in the sport and exercise space. Right now, there's a lot of research on hormone um, interactions in transgender because of hormone therapy, but that's not being transferred into the sport and fitness space because we don't know enough about that aspect yet to be able to translate it into other spaces. So it's so new and the conversation is so much further ahead than what the science is. And as scientists, we feel the frustration, but we also know that we can't divide it up too much or people are gonna stop listening. Because if we say, okay, we need to look specifically at the cis woman, we need to look specifically at um, non-binary, we have to look specifically at transgendered, we have to look specifically at all the different races within it, then people stop listening and you stop getting funding. So we have to have that full voice together to boost the research. And then we can start transitioning and partitioning to get better information for each subpopulation. 
when you take out these um, newer discussions around um, gender identity, transgender, and all the different variations and, and shades that there are, how accepted are the uh, physiological differences uh, between men and women and the need to adapt training, uh, so exercise, um, regimen, uh, and diet? So we're starting to get better traction. Um, there's more and more research coming out showing the effects on uh, adaptation, sleep, nutrition of our menstrual cycle and oral contraceptive pill and other hormone therapies within uh, a biological female. Um, we still have a lot further to go to get full traction. Newer generation of coaches, newer generation of sports scientists are like, yeah, we know this, not a problem. But if we look at older school, they are still very much, hmm, I don't think so. I think the adaptation of training has a bigger effect than what it is with the menstrual cycle. And we're seeing more and more research that's disproving that thought, but it's still hard to translate it out when people are so ingrained in their coaching methods and methodology. Because basically coaching and coaching methodology is about 20 years behind science. And and um even if if the this the science is really available and has been translated into how that should affect programming until you change just the culture and and the and and the habits of people in such a field, it takes decades to do that. I mean it's it's similar with uh, the school system. Um, we know that the school system very likely does not prepare your children now for the best possible future in 20 years from now, but changing such a tanker is, is really difficult. <laughs> it is. It is very hard. And when we're talking like sport and exercise and nutrition, they're almost cult-like. Like if I were to post something on nutrition on social media, there's a gazillion comments and none of it is science-based. It's all personal, like what I did, what I felt, how this particular thing helped me. How dare you say that it's not right? Because we have all these mixed voices. So when you're fighting culture with science, still marketing and culture is stronger than science. So we need a big, huge voice to bring that scientific evidence and push it out. Like we even look in the military space and it was 2014, 2015, when the UK and the US were starting to have the conversation that, yeah, women could be on combat line. Now we're 2023 and women are at the front line, but they don't have equipment that fits them. They don't have... Um, training methodologies that's beneficial for them. They don't have ways of talking about menstrual cycle, what options are there for them? Because once they had that conversation of, let me get to the front line, evidently they don't want to do any kind of compensation for being a woman because then that means that they're quote, bending the military rules to help another gender. Instead of going, how are we optimally going to get our soldiers to the front line? So culture is hard. Is um, is there the same difficulty also in real professional sports? I'm asking because it seems that when you're really into professional sport and it is really about getting 
the few percentage of improvement and differences versus others, you should be highly motivated to to lean on on newest research. Yes, and we see individuals who are adopting it. And there's a lot of professional athletes who are coming out saying, once I started tracking my menstrual cycle and understanding how it affected me, we could tweak my training to work for me with my cycle. And I was able to stop being injured. I was able to recover better. So there are a whole bunch of things that are coming out. As a team focus, there's hit or miss. So we're still seeing that in that professional realm, they're again, our early adopters, and they're working on that individual precision type idea. And then there's still others who have more of that group thought. Um, and when people are like, well, why would you want to do any kind of cycle tracking and stuff? It's like, well, that's a health marker. But also if we're talking about precision medicine, it fits into that. So in the upper echelon of Olympians and professional sport, they're definitely paying attention. But there are still those pockets who are not. And we'll see what happens in the next few years to those that aren't paying attention. From a physiological standpoint, what are the key differences between men and women that you need to take into account that do affect their training and, and the, the diet and maybe recovery and all of these other subsequent fields? Yeah. So I'll start, I guess, with metabolism and fueling. Like the big thing in a lot of endurance sports is metabolic flexibility, uh, zone two training, these kinds of things where we're looking at increasing our free fatty acid use and having a higher reliance on, on fat as a fuel. So we have a lot of women who might do fasted training. They're doing a lot of long, slow distance, trying to get that metabolic efficiency but they're already there by the nature of being XX. So there are sex differences from birth. And one of them is within the skeletal muscle itself, where we're looking at female mitochondria. And women's mitochondria has more proteins available for free fatty acid use. So we don't have to develop those mitochondria and the mitochondrial proteins. They're already there. The other thing that comes into play is how women's bodies fuel. So women preferentially go through blood glucose, and they only use a little bit of glycogen. There's not full depletion from the liver and the muscle. They start tapping into free fatty acid. So if we're looking at carbohydrate availability and we're having just a small amount of carbohydrate to keep blood sugar up, then women tend to stay in a really good fueling situation. But if we lean into that 90 grams of carb per hour of mixed carbohydrate, it it overfuels them in the fact that then they become hypoglycemic. They into gut issues, their body isn't fueling itself right. It's not able to get into using more free fatty acids because it's like there's so much blood sugar. I'm gonna, I gotta, I gotta go through that, which then can shut down some of the mitochondria because if there is too much carbohydrate, too much blood sugar, then the mitochondria aren't going to be activated, per se, for free fatty acid. And if there's not enough, then the liver will feed back and shut it all down and say, no, we guys really have to conserve here. Um, so the trendy diets that are going to try to make people more metabolically efficient backfire on women. So that's just one aspect. And then we look at recovery and how women recover because we have different um, amount of, of type 2 fibers versus type 1 endurance fibers. We have 70% of the creatine stores that men do. So fast twitch glycolytic activity takes a little bit more for us to recover from. So we see it in, in training camps, mixed, mixed um, sex training camps. The women will be right there with the men. 
first two days and then they're like, I'm out. And then the last two to three days, the men are like, I'm out and the women come back into play. So there's lots of little nuances that we know from birth and then at puberty with the exposure of estrogen and progesterone, how that also alters things like our biomechanics. And we should be teaching young girls how to land, how to run, how to throw, how to swim, all again, because their biomechanics have changed. So on the on the last point, you're saying the biomechanics are changing throughout puberty. Yes. And in, yes. in a, in a different or in a, in a more nuanced or in a bigger way than when men go through puberty. Absolutely. So if we look at uh, a young boy and a young girl, they're pretty matched until they're about eight. And then you'll start to see this drop off where the little boys are getting faster at running and they're starting to be more powerful because that's an early rise of testosterone. And for the young girls, they're starting to put on more body fat. They're becoming a little bit ungainly. They're having more mood swings. And this is the early exposure of estrogen. When we get the full exposure of estrogen and progesterone, we see that a woman's hips widen. So it's part of the whole, instead of becoming uh, tall and lean like most little boys do, girls' hips widen. And with that, their shoulder girdle also widens so that their arms aren't going to hit their hips when they're running. Their center of gravity changes from upper, upper chest area down to lower center of mass. And this affects how they will run, how they land, how they swim, how they jump. And when we're talking about sport, we don't see girls being retaught these basic elements. And so it feeds forward to injury in their teenage years. It also feeds forward to girls dropping out of sport because they don't feel like themselves in their sport anymore. No one's told them, hey, you're having all these biomechanical changes, but if we work on functional strengths and work on getting your mechanics right, you're going to be fine in this transitional period and you'll come out the other side fitter, stronger, faster. You don't have to do that with boys because of the exposure of testosterone. And that is stronger bones, more lean mass, more power, more speed. And so that transfers into what we see as success in sport, where there's more power, there's more speed, there's more aggression. So there's this huge change that happens at puberty that really can, from a social standpoint, Put an impact on progressing the male idea of what success in sport is, which really downplays girls' ability to foster their love and keep going further in sport. Wow, I've never heard somebody talk about this in, in such a specific way, especially also with this differentiation between there's this physical impact um, that women feel, but also a psychological impact. That, that 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 comes with it. Now, before we go into menstrual cycle, which of the effects that you just described, from your point of view, if there, if you can say something like that, has the biggest impact um, on how differently we should think about training and nutrition for women? Um, it's kind of the combination. So if we look at puberty and the menstrual cycle and how that combination and then the like, constant exposure now of cyclical estrogen and progesterone. 
that has major impact on how we should be training in pure. We're looking at the sex differences from birth. They're not as apparent that we need to really tailor to them until we get into how are we recovering, how are we sleeping, and how are we doing more cognition and, and reaction times. Okay. Um, well, that, 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 makes, that makes sense. Um, before double-clicking into this, now, there, there seem to be this general um, difference in the physiolog physiology between man and female. Now, if you take the menstrual cycle into, into, the, into account, so uh, how do hormonal uh, fluctuations throughout a woman's menstrual um, cycle impact uh, her training capabilities, re recovery, and if there is the possibility to answer that in likely a, a more simplified way is if you look at these um, hormonal differences or fluctuations throughout the menstrual cycle versus the general differences between men and female, is there a way to say how much impact or how important these, these are compared to each other for adapting training and diet? Yeah. And I, I, um, find it interesting when male coaches are like, is there really, because I have all these metrics, these metrics show that there's no difference. But when we look at coaching metrics and some of the biggest ones that coaches use are, are things like resting heart rate, heart rate variability, training stress score, all of those are affected by menstrual cycle hormone fluctuation. So if we're really trying to dial in, and we also look at, at um, pure strength measures as well. So there's a difference between how muscle um, torque and velocity change over the menstrual cycle too. So if we look at a typical menstrual cycle where day one is the first day of bleeding and then around day 12 or 13, there's an estrogen surge ovulation. After ovulation, progesterone and estrogen come up. They peak around day 24, 25, and then around day 28, we see them drop off and then you end up with day one again, second day of bleed. So that's textbook. Every woman is different. We know that there are between three and five anovulatory cycles a year. So that means women don't ovulate. They don't ovulate, don't have as much progesterone. Their cycle lengths may shorten or lengthen depending on stress and if they're traveling or not. So when we're looking at menstrual cycle effects, the very first thing a woman needs to do is understand her own body and how the menstrual cycle affects her. Because you'll see that some women feel like bulletproof, ready to go the day before their period starts or the day their period starts. But they've always been told that you shouldn't be doing anything powerful when you start bleeding because women are delicate petals and we don't need to be doing it. But from a physiological standpoint, the hormones have dropped. And this is where your body is really robust in, in um, taking on stress and load. We see there is uh, an immune system response that fights virus and bacteria. It's not pro-inflammatory. We see that we are able to access carbohydrate better. We have a lower resting core temperature, so our heat tolerance is better. We see changes in mood. We see women have more motivation. They have better cognitive responses. They have more aggression. They have more confidence. And then when we look at our typical coaching metrics of resting heart rate, our respiratory rate, our heart rate variability, 
they all will reflect someone that is really primed for taking on stress in life. Around ovulation, there is a transition between an upsurge of estrogen that comes down a little bit, and then estrogen starts to come up. And after ovulation, we see progesterone coming up because the follicle that was holding the egg actually degrades into progesterone. So when estrogen and progesterone come up, they kind of counter each other and work together to create change because the whole goal of that ovulatory phase into the early luteal phase is to create a really robust, lovely endometrial lining for a fertilized egg. So what happens is estrogen progesterone will prevent the body from storing and using more liver and muscle glycogen because it's shuttling all that carbohydrate into the endometrial lining to provide a really good you know, environment for a fertilized egg. Progesterone uh, breaks down lean mass. It, it's trying to get more amino acids available for building blocks for that tissue. We see an increase in our core temperature because we now have a pro-inflammatory response from our immune system because the body doesn't want to attack a fertilized egg, but it also doesn't want you to get sick. So it has more of a pro-inflammatory response. So if something invades, it's like, ah, we got to have this inflammatory heat response to get rid of all the bad stuff. We see that with regards to neurotransmitters, when we have elevation in estrogen, it causes hypersensitivity of serotonin in the brain. So women will have more serotonin and more activation of serotonin receptors. But then as estrogen starts to drop, this is where they experience depression and anxiety because all of a sudden, boom, all that heightened awareness of serotonin is gone. And it's such a dramatic shift in the brain that it's a depressive response. So if we're looking at it from those perspectives with training, then we want to work with those hormones to be able to dial in really heavy, robust loads for a really good training stress when the body is able to take on that load. And then we want to look specifically at the woman's own cycle and how she responds in the mid and late luteal phase to see those days where she feels flat and not so great. So we're not trying to push her to achieve a PR or to hit higher lows on that particular day because she's just hitting a brick wall because her body isn't going to let her. But when we talk about performance, there's never a bad day across the menstrual cycle to perform at your best with regards to a race or setting a PR and that kind of stuff, because we see that there are more psychological aspects that come into play. And if you are training specifically up for a race, then you know how your body responds and you can put different nutrition interventions into play. If your A event comes on like day 20 of your menstrual cycle and you always feel flat on it. We can look at increasing protein, we put some branched-chain amino acids in, we increase carbohydrate content in the food that you're eating, and it levels that length. So if I understood you correctly, the um, menstrual cycle, uh, you should take that into account when it comes to training. But when yes. it really comes to, I'm doing a race on day X, because of the individual woman is... Uh, you know, has been experiencing their cycle already a, a lot of times, and they built experience in handling the different the different um, impact uh, of that. When it comes to performance in a race, 
the um the time where a woman is on their menstrual cycle is not as impactful did i understood that correctly exactly exactly i tell you i get so many emails like the week before um kona ironman world championships of people going oh my gosh my period's gonna come on race day i'm like sweet that's what you want because your hormones have dropped you're ready to go and when women understand that and become empowered by that they don't fear it it's the same as um um, I'm going to be racing two days before my period starts. I always feel bloated and awful. What do I do? It's like, well, we have time. We can put these things into play. We can increase magnesium and omega-3s and really level that playing field. And it's the empowerment of knowing that helps feed forward with better performance. And when we do performance tests in the lab, so we're looking at one point in time, there isn't any um, physical performance difference it's more of a, a, a perceived exertion difference. So if we are empowering women to understand that their body can perform at its best when it's prepared at any point in the menstrual cycle and remove that psychological aspect of, oh, I'm not going to do well, then we see people supersede any of their expectations. You said when prepared. So that means that um, despite saying, um, hey, my menstrual cycle does not need to reduce my performance in any way on a race day, I do need to make sure that I'm prepared for the specific point in my menstrual cycle that, that I will be at when I am in that race. If it affects them. So, you know, like I said, if women are tracking their menstrual cycle and they know that there are certain days where they don't feel that great then in training, we're not going to push on those days. But if we know that their race falls on one of those particular days, we know this in advance so that we can prepare the body to have enough carbohydrate, have more um, branch chains and amino acids circulating to help with neurotransmitters. We can work on hydration, doing specific hyperhydration work. We look at um, increasing magnesium, zinc, and omega-3s to counter some of progesterone and estrogen's effects. So there are really specific things we can do, as well as talking to the woman, getting her to understand that from a physiological perspective in the lab, we know no difference. It's up here in the head. But to counter what's in the head, we also have to put these strategies into play because it's giving the woman the power to take control of what is happening. And when, when you talk about that, there's, there's no physiological difference um, for my performance on race day just because of menstrual cycle. Does that also hold true for other types of competitions where, you know, there's a different profile of strength, stamina, endurance, flexibility, speed uh, in, in included other than a traditional long distance race? Yes. So when we're looking at the way that um, strength is affected and velocity, there are certain times where women are better. So we look right before ovulation and we see a better, um, well, there's better velocity, there's better pure strength. And if we're training to that, then we know that. But again, you can't pick a specific day for your competition. So it is looking at how are we going to leverage that? So again, it comes back to training. So if we're maximizing how we are doing our power and speed work in and around the times where women have better acumen for developing speed and power, then when it comes down to competition, it's a, it's a non-issue. 
the caveat there is if a woman is on an oral contraceptive pill, because then we see specific differences. And the best thing to do to improve performance is to get off the combined oral contraceptive pill and be naturally cycling or using uh, an IUD because you're still going to have your natural cycle, but you won't necessarily have uh, a bleed phase. So we're looking at the different um, components within an oral contraceptive pill. We see that women who have a higher dose of estrogen, so a 30 microgram dose versus a 20 microgram dose, will put on more muscle mass, but they won't have an increase in strength with that muscle mass as compared to someone who's on a lower dose because estrogen is women's like anabolic hormone. So we see that it helps increase total muscle mass and muscle volume, but we don't necessarily see that neuromuscular adaptation that causes an increase in strength. So to me, looking at my Olympic weightlifters, being on an oral contraceptive pill is a performance decrement because they're trying to stay within a weight class and be as strong as possible in that weight class. But if they're using something that's going to put on muscle mass that's not functional, then that is a performance decrement. Wow, I have not thought about actively thought about the complexity of all these overlapping systems that you have just uh, so beautifully described to us. Um, when, when it comes to the practical implications for 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 women and 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 fitness, um, is there a way to speak about the most important principles for, to tailoring exercise programs to the unique needs of women? It shouldn't be complicated. People get into the idea that women have this complexity and it's really complicated. But what we're really trying to get across is that every woman's menstrual cycle is different from her sister, her mother, her friend. And so when you understand your own body, that's when you can have the conversations with your coach, your personal trainer to tweak your training accordingly. So if you're going to rock up to the gym and you have this really heavy power session, but you know that you're just not feeling it. If you're a guy and you rock up and you're really tired, you wouldn't do that power session just because it's on the training table. You would say, eh, coach, I don't feel that great. I, I need a, a modification. It's the same thing where a woman can walk in and be like, hey, coach, I don't feel that great because it's day 18. So I need to do something different. So it's not really being difficult or having increased complexity. It's just opening those conversations. So that's where we are to make it really fit for purpose. Even women who are recreational athletes and they go to the gym and they might be doing body pump or they might be doing, you know, Orange Theory in the States or whatever. You're paying for that class. You're paying for the privilege of being at the gym. So you want to make it work for you. So if you're in a body pump class and they're like, let's do really high reps and really do a huge anaerobic capacity workout here in body pump. And you're like, ah, I just don't feel that great. You're going to dial it back for yourself. And it's really hard because you're in a room and you want to be competitive with the other people in the room, even though you say you're not. But for your own body and to get more out of the fitness, make that class work for you because you're paying for that instructor. You're paying for that class. So you should get what you want out of it instead of just remotely doing what someone's telling you to do. Uh, and when it comes to the um, just general physiological differences between men and females, so for example, you have, you've alluded before to 
um when it comes to recovery there, there are different types of muscle fiber creatine um creatine um storage um works differently in men between female is there a practical implications that women should keep in mind when they look at their exercise program to basically um include um those differences we look at an age factor, right? So if we're younger women and we're looking at strength capacity, then we want to look and see, okay, how is this being periodized for me? What are my reps? The higher rep range is fine. Um, so some of the traditional periodization aspects of strength are going to work. You're going to get some strength. You're going to get some hypertrophy. But as we get older and we're talking women who are 40 plus, that doesn't work for them anymore because we're starting to see a change in estrogen progesterone, where we're having less and less ovulatory cycles, we're having changes in the ratios. And one of the things that women have to really start honing in on is power-based resistance training. So not the 10 plus reps, but you're looking at heavy loads that are you know, three to six reps, because you need a central nervous system response now to get strength and power and muscle mass being built. Because as estrogen starts to wane, we're losing a key hormone that stimulates strength, power, and muscle mass. So we need to look at a different way of our training working for us. So with men, men age in a linear fashion. So you'll see men who are in their 50s doing something similar to men who are in their 40s and 30s. That doesn't work for women. So we'll see a whole cadre of women who are hitting the gym and trying to get fit when they're 40 plus and they're just not getting results because they're not doing the right kind of training. Interesting. So if I understood you correctly, that over time, because of the changes in, 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 in women hormone system, um, women should prioritize rep ranges that are significantly lower than what you typically see in women exercises, so three to six um, reps. Um, With heavy weight. So you're doing yeah. that power, boost. you're looking at that 75 plus, preferably 80 plus um, percent one rep max. So it's that true power-based training. Um, because estrogen is so tightly tied to how a muscle contracts, how strong the muscle contracts, and the stimulus for just basic satellite cell development, when you lose it, you need your nervous system to take over. And the best way to get the nervous system to take over is to do that heavy load power-based training. And are there any other um, general things that I should be aware as a coach when I'm designing an exercise program for men and women and um, where I should make differences between men and women now um, not taking the menstrual cycle into account, just the general physiological differences between men and female? If you're doing strength-based stuff, not so much. If we're doing cardiovascular work, then yeah, we do want to look at differences. So women do better with more high-intensity, short, sharp bursts, even if they're endurance athletes. Women don't have to spend as much time in volume because, like I said, sex differences from birth, women are really able to go long and slow. And when we take those sex hormones away, and we see this in postmenopause without those hormones, we see this huge uprise of women who are in ultra endurance sports because they can go long and slow. So if we're looking at younger women 
regardless of menstrual cycle phase. You don't have to do long volumes because the bodies are already able to do that. What women need is short, sharp, high intensity work to stimulate more of those fast twitch fibers, to stimulate better metabolic control and to keep that power and strength. So, you know, things like plyometrics, really good for women of all ages, but putting an emphasis on that kind of work and not the long, slow zone two type stuff is really beneficial for women as compared to men. Interesting. Just observationally, I have not checked also with our workout data. So this is purely observationally pro science, you know, walking to the gym and, and, and seeing, seeing people working out. It seems that women are more on the side of long, uh, long, um, you know, zone two cardio um, compared to male. Absolutely. And this is a social construct because the way that gyms have been designed, you have all the lifting platforms and stuff towards the back of the gym, right? So it's very daunting for a woman to walk into a masculine environment and then walk through everything back to the lifting platform. And for the most part, when a woman goes to join a gym, just inherently the questions that are asked always turn to how much weight do you want to lose? And here are spinning classes and here are cardiovascular equipment. They don't even show people where the lifting platforms are unless a woman specifically asks. But if a guy comes in to join a gym, it's always how much weight do you want to gain? And here's the lifting platform. They don't talk about the spin classes. They don't talk about the boot camp classes. They don't talk about the cardiovascular equipment. So when you go into a gym, just because it's gendered by nature, women gravitate to this cardiovascular machines because that's deemed gym appropriate for them. And it's a subconscious current that women are always supposed to be doing the cardiovascular and the, you know, the boot camps and the spin classes and the Pilates and the yoga. And the men are in the gym to lift the weights. It's frustrating. So we need, you need to change that narrative and get women to understand that strength training is like the big rock, regardless of what age you are. It's a type of strength training that you do that changes with age. But to have really good health outcomes, that strength training is so important. Performance outcomes, so important. We put an emphasis on strength training in a lot of our endurance athletes for the back half of a race. When people start to fail in their form and get injured and tired, when they do strength training, they don't experience that. It is it's really frustrating to see this type of, of, of behavior or this type of mindset brought to to so many women, um, for example, in gyms, as you explained, um, not only because of all the actual physiological benefits that um, women might miss out because of this underprioritization of, of strength training, but also because of this mindset that, that, that many women are being pushed uh, into this, you need to exercise to lose weight or because you want to lose weight because something is not right with your body um, versus underlining all the, the the general benefits and just also the joy um, of, of exercising and the joy of progressing and, and, and the joy of doing something for their longevity and, and all of these kind of things. Yeah. And we also see language constructs that support that narrative. So we see quote, the ladies bar instead of a lighter bar, lighter barbell. We see things like girl push-up instead of a push-up modification. We see like when a woman goes into 
a, a CrossFit class, automatically they're put into the box of here's a PVC pipe to learn the movements where they don't really do that for men. And when we're talking to a lot of women who are wanting to look better, and it's not just about losing weight, and you see them that they're doing all these hours of cardio, it's like, wait, you're putting your body in a breakdown state, and you're not going to change the way that your body looks. You're not going to affect body composition. You need to do some strength training to get that muscle to work. And the more cardiovascular work you do, and you don't need to support that, you're breaking down your lean mass. So women who are like, I want to look a certain way, I want to feel a certain way, you start implementing strength training and they see faster results and then they love it. But it's getting them in the door to understand how strength training can get them to where they want to be and be being in the way that they feel. And that's another narrative that's really difficult to transcend because of so many years of women being told calories in, calories out, you have to take up the least amount of space and be small. And when you're looking at strength training, it's about being big and taking up space, not getting bulky, but just being able to move and move freely. It is also really a, a very, very, um, just for lack of a better word, I'm going to say a fucked up space where, I mean, we, we know a lot of um, female influencers who have that really strong and, and, and toned and, and muscle body that more and more also seems to be something that is i want to say on vogue but when they promote the training programs that supposedly lead to these type of more muscular and 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 curvy and strong body it's still very focused on on a you know long zone to cardio um, movements even though those weren't absolutely not the 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 exercises the, the the programming the training that led to that body because there's still seems to be in the consumer so in the in the in the female recipient of that of that communication a very strong somewhat bias against um strength training absolutely absolutely we're seeing in the younger set, like the 20-year-olds, right? They're not so, I guess they're not so precious about it. They're like, yeah, I want to be strong. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to do this. But for those who are in their 30s upwards, there's just always been this conversation that you have to be super skinny and lifting weights is going to make you bulky. So yeah, they'll see someone, they're like, I want to look like that, but I don't want to be too bulky. So I'll buy into their program. And then it's exactly what they expect because they're not expecting to lift heavy weights because in their mind, they think it's going to make them bulky. We know that that's not the case. So in order to keep upselling and selling these programs, it has to be the expectation that's been kind of put in the back of the brain of these women because of that subconscious idea that lifting heavy weights makes you bulky. Let's take um still a few minutes and double click into diet so yeah. how should a diet be tailored to the differences between men and female you have for example talked about metabolism and fueling um earlier in the episode yeah so full stop women do better in a fed state so if we're looking at you know fasted training and stuff that's detrimental to women we know that um, women who don't eat a lot of carbohydrate as well, like if they're eating low carb or um, really not maximizing the amount of food that they're eating, it creates this endocrine dysfunction. 
we see that nutrient timing is way more important for women than men, younger, younger set, where we want to fuel for what we're doing and we want to recover from it. Because post-exercise, women come back down to metabolic baseline really quickly as compared to men. So because their body fuels differently, then they come into a better blood glucose control or blood sugar control a lot faster because their bodies rely on having stable blood glucose. Whereas men will see their blood glucose might still be low, but they increase their free fatty acid use post-exercise. And they can hold it there without having much um, like catabolic damage. But for women, if we don't eat after exercise, then we stay in this breakdown state. And the hypothalamus perceives that as not enough nutrition. And so what it does, even after four days of doing that, is it starts to downregulate your thyroid. And we don't want women to get on the low end of normal for thyroid function because we know that that's a slower metabolism. We have a whole bunch of issues that come with it. If they continue down that path, then they get into a full low energy availability state. So when we start to see menstrual cycle dysfunction and the accumulation of, of body fat, the body's like, wait a second, we don't have enough fuel just to exist, let alone allow you to adapt to this training. So food in and around training, super, super important for women as compared to men. The other thing that happens with both sexes is that they often book in their calories at the beginning and end of the day. So we'll see someone will get up, you know, they might have something before training or maybe not. Then they'll have their protein recovery, hopefully, and then they'll have their meal. And then they're like, oh, gosh, I'm so busy. I got to get out the door. I got to get to work. I've got kids to worry about. Um, I might have a quick lunch on the run. And then they get home from work. They're starving. So they start snacking. Then they have dinner. And then an hour after dinner, they want something else. And so you see this big um, increase of calories right before bed. So what happens is the whole day, they stay in this breakdown state. And the first thing that goes when you're breakdown state is lean mass. So for both sexes, making sure that you're fueling across the day is super important. But the caveat for women is you really have to fuel before and after training to maximize body composition change and adaptation. Well, this has been really insightful, uh, Stacey. The, so let, let me just try to see whether I got the practical implications right. So what you have talked about in the end is, hey, especially women, also to a large extent men, but especially women need to make sure that they fuel their body before and after their, their exercise. That is really crucial. Um, and then I don't know whether I got that right. It seems that a higher proportion of carbohydrates would be beneficial for for female compared yes. to what men would 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 typically eat is that correct yep men can get away with all the crazy low carb no carb diets and the ketogenic stuff and it comes down to sex differences in the brain so if we look at the hypothalamus specifically the hypothalamus is kind of like the control center for metabolism, for body heat, body or body temperature regulation. And there are two areas of what we call kisspeptin neurons in the woman's hypothalamus. And there's only one area in the men's. So these kisspeptin neurons are responsible for appetite, appetite hormones, endocrine function, endocrine control. So when 
the blood passes through and near the hypothalamus, if there's low blood glucose, too many ketones, and the hypothalamus is going, hey, wait a second, there's not enough nutrition here. This is a perturbance of the kispeptin. So it starts to downregulate and turn those kispeptin neurons off, which feeds forward to no luteinizing hormone pulse, which means that you're not going to have an estrogen surge, which means you're not going to ovulate, as well as a disruption in appetite hormones and thyroid function. But because men only have one area, it's not as sensitive. So the best way I can ex- describe it is when we're looking at energy per kilogram of body weight, for women, we start to see lots of dysfunction when women drop below 30 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass. But for men, it's 15. So we're looking at the differences right there of nutrition and sensation within the brain of how women versus men can get away with things. Men can get away with a lot with regards to lower carbohydrate, misstep in their fueling because the hypothalamus is not a sensitive. But for women, primarily from a biological perspective, because women's bodies are designed to, you know, grow a baby, then the hypothalamus is very sensitive to nutrition missteps. So when we look at trendy diets and we see women who are following a low carb or see women who are doing a lot of intermittent fasting and not breaking the fast until later in the day, we start to see blood work that comes back. And it's really apparent that they're in more of a catabolic breakdown state. We see higher C-reactive protein inflammatory markers. We see a lower end of thyroid function, um, not as much estrogen um, pulsation throughout the days. We see a misstep in the estrogen progesterone ratios if they do ovulate. So there's a whole bunch of blood work that shows all this dysfunction, even if the woman thinks that she's fine. Then it leads forward down six months, and then she could possibly be in full relative energy deficiency in sport. And this is where we see almost every system of the body affected. And then we really see performance and training decrements. But for men, not so much. And is there a simple way to give guidance around the the were two specific things that I was thinking about? One is what amount of carbohydrates should um, a woman um, sh- should a woman consume um, over a day? And the second one is um, again, I'm oversimplifying the question here a-, a lot, but is there a calorie deficit threshold under you know uh, above the threshold? It is kind of let's call it safe to be in a calorie deficit because yes, you want to lose some weight, but under that threshold, it really starts to, um, you really start to see all these negative um, impacts that you have been describing before. So when we look at calorie deficits, uh, we want to really look across the day of time. So we want to look more from a chronobiological aspect where we know that cortisol comes up first thing in the morning and your body's like, I need some food. So if we're looking at a calorie deficit, you want to have it later in the afternoon, preferably, you know, with dinner, where you might have a 150 to 200 calorie deficit. And that is enough to instigate some change. It also helps reduce the amount of calories that are consumed at night, which feeds forward to better sleep, 
we have better sleep, then we have better metabolic control and it feeds forward to better body composition change. If we're looking specifically at hardcore athletes who are looking to periodize their training to reach a certain goal weight, this is where we love to manipulate training with nutrition so that the training is well-fueled and you're recovering really well from it. But then we play with calorie deficit to get you right to a level that is just baseline minimum for what you've done in the day. And that changes each day depending on the training. So that's nuanced. But for the general person, the best recommendation for women is, okay, if you're going to go strength training first thing in the morning and you need to fuel, I'm not talking about a full meal. I'm talking about 15 grams of protein. So what, that's about 80 calories, a couple of tablespoons of yogurt. It could be protein powder in your coffee. So it's just enough to bring some amino acids and to fuel you. We also know those amino acids are going to help with the strength training session and feed forward in better recovery. Post-exercise, you want to have around 30 grams of protein. So that can be your meal. It's all you need, breakfast. that has around 30 grams of protein. And then you go through your day and you make sure that you have a about 30 grams of protein at each meal. And then at night, stop eating after dinner. That gives you your calorie deficit because most people won't eat something after dinner or they might have a, you know, a half an hour or so after dinner, they might have something sweet. Just don't have it. And that gives you your calorie deficit. And that works with your body's natural rhythm, your hormone um, responses, your natural hormone responses, feeds forward again to better sleep. So it, Again, the fueling part doesn't mean that you're eating all the time. It's just being very cognizant that you need something before and after. With regards to carbohydrate, that depends on what kind of training you're doing and again, what age you are. So we know that if you're more endurance focused, then you're looking at around five to six grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight a day. If you're older, you want to still kind of hit that, but you're very conscious that you want more of your carbohydrates in and around training because you become a little bit more insulin resistant as you get into your late 40s, early 50s. So if you're more strength training oriented, so you're not doing lots of fuel depleting type work, then you're looking around that four grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight a day. Well, I would assume that the I mean, it's very difficult to talk about averages, but again, more coming now from a bro science perspective, but the average woman, especially in this, you know, diet hypes around low carb and all these things, low carb snacks and, and these things will, uh, is going to be way below five to six grams per, per, per um, yep. kilogram of body weight. Way below. They will be. Yeah. We've done some research looking at gym goers, so recreational women, um, and 55% of them are in a low energy state. And it's because they are following a low carb or they're following the trendy diets. So they're always in the suboptimal, subclinical energy availability, and it feeds forward to being tired all the time and wondering like, why am I so tired? My blood work comes back and shows I'm on the low end of normal for iron but I can't do anything about it because I'm still in the normal range. I'm sleeping, but I wake up and I wake up quite frequently during the night and I don't know why. I just can't get a good sleep. It's because you have a lot of hypoglycemic events that happen at night. 
your body is metabolically active trying to repair. So if you're waking up a lot at night, it's because you just haven't eaten enough. So when we start feeding this information back and realize that these women who are going to the gym a few times a week and working and they're subsisting on 15 to 1600 calories a day because that's what they've read or someone's told them that's all they need. They're about a thousand calories down on a day and most of it comes from carbohydrate. Um, a very specific question that just came to my mind is that, um, and I think it's more around male, but I have seen a lot of, let's say, observational studies slash experience, uh, experience reports, stories where I think mostly male went on a full um, carnivore um, diet and quote unquote felt great afterwards. Um, a lot of health issues, um, which were somewhat related to, um, autoimmune diseases and things like that. They, they, those went away, um, you know, lost a lot of weight, looked great afterwards. Um, do, do, do you, do you hear these type of stories? Do you see these type of things also with women now, as we have just been specifically talking about the importance of carbohydrates for, for, for women? And if you have an uh, opinion on, on that, when there are these, um, observational studies or stories around men and the carnivore diet, is that really because of the pure focus of eating meat or is that because of all the things that you subtract from your diet that otherwise make you look and feel shit? It's really all the shit that you're eating before. <laughs> because when we look at when someone takes a focus and really wants to follow like the carnivore diet or a ketogenic diet, they take out all the processed food, right? So all of that ultra processed food is gone. All the simple carbohydrates are gone. They are really conscious of if they are going to have any kind of carbohydrate is coming from vegetables. If people are following the carnivorous diet, there's almost nothing but meat animal products in there. And that changes the gut microbiome. And when you are changing the gut microbiome, it'll feed forward to different health outcomes. So I've seen a lot of men who have been very, you know, red faced, overweight, not feeling great, uh, a little bit insulin dependent or insulin resistant and they start going to the gym or working out and they're still not seeing any metabolic change until they go on to some kind of re really extreme type diet like the carnivore diet and it, then it they are focusing on diet and exercise so all of their focus comes on what am i doing specifically whereas before they didn't so when you're looking at the longitudinal work on them after they've changed your gut microbiome which thrives on just meat then we'll start to see issues down the line because you need greater diversity for things like brain health and hormone function. So those short stories of I've done this diet for six months or I've done this diet for a year and I feel fantastic. It's not long enough yet to see the true ramifications. So we see things like The Biggest Loser, that TV show that was so popular back in the day where you have all of these people lose so much weight and they feel fantastic. Well, when we look from a metabolic standpoint, because they did so much severe weight loss, they will exist on about half the calories that someone their same age and same size and same body composition who never went through that severe diet will. 
So a lot of the men from The Biggest Losers shows that have lost all of that weight and they're still going to the gym, their body only needs around 800 calories. Whereas someone who never went through that would be looking at needing a baseline of 2000. So the ramification of these crazy diets still are coming out in the research. So even though we have all this anecdotal stuff that's saying, I feel fantastic. When I post something about women shouldn't do keto or shouldn't do intermittent fasting, get all these posts of, I've been doing it for a year or two years and I feel fantastic. I never go back. And as I always go, I want to see the blood work. I want to see gut microbiome. And I want you to come talk to me in another two years and see where you are. There, there, there are so many things that I'd love to expand here, but that would really, um, that that would really explode the, the scope of the show. Um, part two, we'll do a part two. Part two, we do a part two. Fantastic! Yeah, uh, everybody heard, heard that. Um, Stacy's down for part two. Um, then for part one, so I have learned a lot about um, men and female differences, how that should affect training programming. I think especially our female listeners will get a ton of knowledge about this with very practical implications. Do you feel that there's a big area in this whole topic, men um, versus female, that we haven't covered that would be absolutely important to all to talk about uh, still now? Supplements, <laughs> popular supplements, maybe. Because um, we see all this stuff, you know, like using beet juice or nitrates, beta alanine. We need to look at using creatine or caffeine, all these things. And of all of the performance supplements out there, or even lifestyle supplements, only creatine, caffeine, and iron have robust research for women. The rest of them haven't had enough research or actually show that. They don't work in women. So when we get pitched all the stuff from the supplement industry, it's all based again on bro science, except for things like protein powder. When we look at protein supplementation, then we know that that's been done on both sexes and the amino acid stuff comes into play. Dosing is a different story, but we look, you know, like creatine. Women kind of try to shy away from creatine monohydrate because of all the ideas of getting too bulky and bloated and all the side effects that we hear with water retention with creatine. But in fact, that's one of the things that women should be taking, but only three to five grams. Because when we take three to five grams, it boosts our muscle saturation and our gut saturation, our brain saturation, and improves not only muscle function from a performance standpoint, but also improves our moods. We've seen randomized control trials of women who have depression and anxiety and that put on a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. They have a depressive episode and women who are SSRI plus creatine get out of that episode so much faster than women who are just on the medication and then often go off the medication and just use creatine and stay out of depression because it's so important. So we're looking at dosage and how essential creatine is for women, not only from a performance, health standpoint. Whereas if you look at something like beet juice, it doesn't have any effect for women because estrogen is what works for vasodilation and vasoconstrictive properties. And men don't have that. So there's lots of things in the supplement world that we could tease out too, but that would be part three. <laughs> I've got those topics noted down for deep dives in part two and part three. Maybe just because that seems to be a very important um, 
question based on what you said. When it when so you said okay, there's creatine, caffeine, um, iron. I think it was, um, and generally mm -hmm. protein, protein powder. Um, where there's robust research also for females. When it comes to the other supplements, is this rather a question of well, they might just not do anything, so there's 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 um, no impact, or can it be actually dangerous, detrimental um, to 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 female health to take um, some of these supplements that are that that are common in in the men's space so the one that i'll hammer in is nitrates because they're a big thing at the moment like taking nitrates to get um you know that vasodilatory pump before you go into the gym or use it for endurance and it can be detrimental for naturally cycling or younger women even on oral contraceptive pill because estrogen is so tightly tied to endothelial cell function so endothelial cells are what line your blood vessels and estrogen is really tightly tied to the nitric oxide responses within that. But if you're taking nitrates, then it reduces the natural feedback mechanism and you can get blood vessel um, dysregulation. So you'll get blood pressure malalignment. Um, so you won't have really good blood pressure control if you keep using nitrates. When we see nitrate use in postmenopausal women, it works beautifully because they don't have estrogen. So it does have an but for younger reproductive women using nitrates, it can be very detrimental and somewhat damaging. Got it. Thank you for that um, important differentiation because I think there is a, it's a very different thing of I might take something where I'm wasting my money, but that's about it. Um, or I'm taking something and not only wasting my money, but actually hurting myself in, in, in some yeah. way. Yeah, exactly. As we come to an end, at least for part one, um, Stacey, may I ask you what we call our finisher questions? So just, you know, to get your 30-second gut reaction on three or four questions um, that, that we have. So the first one is, what does happiness mean for you? Having time and space. So because life is so busy, if I have the ability to take a pause and have just no timeline and I can just hang out with my family and there's no pressure that brings extreme happiness because it's such a rarity. Beautiful answer. If you could live your life again, uh, what would you wish you would have fully understood at the age of 20? That life doesn't end at 21. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think when I was 20, I always got pushback for asking so many questions, which now has led me to where I am with all the questions that I've asked and pushed. And I always had a sense of self-doubt, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be pushing so hard. I shouldn't be asking these questions. Maybe I'm wrong, um, which is part of the learning process. But I wish I knew then that it was great to ask questions and keep pushing and pushing and challenging the dogma. So that from a psychological and self, I guess, actionable awareness that I wouldn't have gone through lots of these dark spaces of questioning, am I doing the right thing or not? And which decision would you take differently? Assuming there would be a surgical way to take one decision differently and there's not this butterfly effect on your life that, you know, when you take yeah. a decision differently, everything has changed uh, afterwards. Oh, gosh. I don't 
I don't know if I actually have an answer for that. And I say that because I don't have five-year plans. I've always had the um, idea that if I'm given two opportunities, I'm going to take the one that's the most challenging. If I can say, if I take that and it doesn't work, I can fall back to where I am now and start again. So this is how I got out of being full-time academic. When someone came to me and said, hey, you know, these are some great ideas. Let's launch a company. And it was that point where it's like, ooh, do I stay on this academic pathway, continue with tenure, keep doing what I'm doing, or do I take this opportunity that so many people want that's a rarity for someone to offer you money to start a company? And the safe person would be like, no, I'm going to stay tenure track. But I'm like, no, this is an opportunity that if it fails, I can always go back to academia. So those are the kinds of things that I've encountered throughout my life. Like when I was 25, the opportunity to move across the world to New Zealand or stay in San Francisco in a safe place and a safe job. I was like, yeah, I'm moving. Why not? Because if it fails, I can always come back. So that's why I don't think there's any one particular decision that I would go back and do over again. It's a very inspiring answer. There's a theory around decision-making that if you're presented with two options or maybe also multiple options and they you have difficulties deciding between them because some there is not a clear winner you should always go for the more challenging one not for the reason that you mentioned which is also a good great reason but in that theory at least it says that your brain has a bias that it tries to make the more challenging um options seem less valuable because your brain doesn't want the bias doesn't want you to have to go through that challenge Mm -hmm. interesting i always am like "Hmm, would someone else do this probably not so i'm gonna do it (laughs) where should listeners go to learn more about you uh your work or what is important to you um, so our website, drstacyzenis.com, kind of covers everything. Uh, our courses, the research I'm doing, sign up for our newsletter, all that kind of stuff. And then if you're like, I won't remember a website, just go to Instagram. Find me, Dr. Stacy Sims on Instagram, because we post a lot of stuff, uh, new research that's come out in the women's space, conferences, conference proceedings, just really good practical information almost every day. Um, so that's another way of keeping Stacy, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we have learned a ton, um, both theoretical and practical things, uh, and has been inspirational. Great. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to the show. I would love to get your comments, suggestions, and feedback. Also, if there's a special topic you would like me to address or someone specific you'd love to see on the show. If you want to support me, please hit the subscribe button and leave me a rating. I hope you will listen in again on the next show. Until then, all the best.